to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're using the blue um, um, Bible in your view, please, uh, it's on page 1014, 1014. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, as we take a closer look at your resurrection and what it means for our lives, we pray that you would enable us to trust you all the more, to embrace the glory of what you have accomplished And, Lord, to live it out in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you bless us to be a people, a resurrected people, bearing witness for you, establishing, Lord, your glory in our midst through our ministry and love to one another and as it breaks out into this dark world. And, oh, Lord, we do hasten the day. We look to that day, Lord, when... You will come, as Paul says, and you will transform our humble bodies to be conformed to your body of glory. We know at that time, Lord, that the whole earth that awaits this resurrection of the children of God, that the whole earth will be resurrected to be made new, to be restored. Lord, we we thank you that your resurrection is not only life-changing, 
and community changing, but it is history changing. It is universe changing. It changes all things. Lord, may we see it afresh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It may, it may look uh, at first in reading First Peter that uh, we're a little bit distant from uh, the resurrection. We've been in this passage for a couple of weeks, and uh, I wanted to stay here. And actually, this will pertain most, mostly to our third point. So you've got to wait for the third. Please don't go to sleep before the third point. No. <clears throat> but Because uh, we're going to talk about the fact that we have a resurrected community, okay? A resurrected community, critical thing uh, that we need to consider uh, as we think about the resurrection of, of Christ. Now, uh, the claim that Jesus rose from the dead could mean one of many things to you. Uh, it, it could mean to you something that you kind of tip your hat at. You say, yeah, I, I basically think that he rose from the dead, but maybe it's not, it doesn't mean anything to you on a day-to-day basis. If I ask, do you live out the resurrection? Does the resurrection mean something to you most days of your life? Does it, does it bear on your life in any way? Does it condition the way you think about life? Does it condition the way you think about this world? The way you think about history? The way you think about relationship? What, what is the resurrection to you? It's a, a, a very important question Maybe to you, uh, the resurrection is just hogwash. You know? Maybe you're here because it's Easter, you know, right? Uh, you came with a friend or whatever. And, and maybe to you, you just can't buy this idea that somebody was raised from the dead. And that's basically your approach to it. Maybe for you, uh, the resurrection's a matter of strong intellectual belief, uh, and, and you, you, you believe it firmly. But for you, it's kind of an arguing point, you know? It's a way you win intellectual battles with other people. So you say to the skeptic, and of course I would agree with these arguments, but you say to the skeptic, so what happened to the body? Why didn't the, why didn't the Jews just produce the body? That would have ended it right there. Why didn't the Romans just produce the body? That would have ended Christianity right on the spot. These people claiming that he was raised from the dead. Oh, yeah, here he is. He's really raised from the dead. But they couldn't. They didn't. It wasn't anywhere. Uh, how, how could 500 people see him at once? How, how could that be their imagination? How could they make that up? And as Paul said, they were largely, they're all hanging out mostly, even at that time. Uh, how could his disciples... Be scattered, scared, denying, ashamed of him, and then suddenly, days later, they're giving their lives to proclaim that he's alive from the dead. How did that happen? What happened to these people? How do we explain that? How do we explain Paul, this Jew, zealous Jew, who was persecuting Christians, even holding the garments for those that put Stephen to death, stoned him to death. And then days later, he's proclaiming this Christ that he was persecuting, claiming he saw the risen Savior. How do we explain these things, this, this resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ? 
But see, you may want to argue those points, and like I said, I would join you in that, but maybe the resurrection to you is just kind of a religious weapon, you know, like an M16 that you use to mow down pesky unbelievers. Uh, But is it something that you depend on for your life? What does the resurrection of Jesus mean to you? And it's interesting that the Bible really divides all the people in the world kind of into two camps, okay? Uh, Those who are depending on the resurrection to live their lives day by day and those who aren't. Those to whom the resurrection has become the centerpiece of their lives and those to whom it's not. Maybe they don't agree with it, don't believe in it, maybe they tip their hat to it, maybe it's an arguing point, but it's not the center, the central event governing their lives. So I want to ask this question, why would anyone then depend on the resurrection to live their life? What is there about the resurrection that would garner that kind of attention? Uh, I, I have to keep remembering we, our, our lapel mic broke down, so I've got to stay close. And I'll, I'll do that a hundred times probably, start walking around here. <clears throat> But there are four things I want to mention, and I want to put them all in terms of hope. Because Lord knows we need hope every day. How much hope do we need? So the resurrection brings us, first of all, the hope of forgiveness. The hope of forgiveness. And by that I mean the hope of being accepted by God. The hope of having fellowship with God The hope as it translates into knowing I have the smile of God upon me every day. What a hope to wake up to every day and think I have the smile of the creator God upon my life. Now, how does this work? Well, if Jesus simply died, it'd be regarded as a man who just came and said a bunch of good things, and then he just died. And the Jews would have been justified in saying, hey, it says in the Old Testament, anybody hangs on a tree like he did, they're cursed of God. You say he was the king of the Jews? Well, why did the king of the Jews suffer at the hands of the Gentiles and just was put away like that? How could he be the king? And so the the resurrection is God's vindication of Jesus. It's God saying this, in fact, he said this at his baptism, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He said it on a mountain with three of his followers in glory and the cloud came down and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And in a sense, the resurrection is, even after people put him to death, the resurrection is like God saying, like I said, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In other words, he died not because he had sinned, but as many places say, he died because we had sinned. He wasn't cursed of God because he had done anything wrong. He was cursed of God because he stood in our place to bear our punishment for what we had done wrong. And the resurrection proclaims this. The resurrection is like Jesus going to prison for us and then being released from prison. And if he's gone to prison for us and he's released from prison, then we're released from prison. 
If he's released from death and condemnation, we are released from death and condemnation if we trust in him. Because his history of dying and being resurrected becomes our history as well. And that's why Jesus said on the cross that it is finished. I have paid for sin. It is accomplished. And it's as though God in the resurrection said, absolutely. It is finished. Resurrection. Yes, it is finished. Amen. It is finished. It has done. He has sacrificed for sin. And now God can offer his son to everyone in the world and say, trust in him. For he has accomplished salvation, and I've raised him from the dead. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not raised, because some people were saying there's not a resurrection, and Paul said, if there's not a resurrection, then Jesus wasn't even raised. He said, if Jesus wasn't raised, we're still in our sins. Do you get the point? If he's not raised, then there's no indication that he paid for sin. And that's why the resurrection is so critical for us to know that we can be forgiven. Because God released him from death. He utterly paid for sin. And that's why he was released himself from death. And that release is your release if you trust in him. Just as surely as he's released from death, so you will be released from condemnation and judgment and final death. And so, as we trust in him, we're joined to his death and resurrection. His vindication is your vindication. His being justified, in a sense, being declared righteous, is your being declared righteous if you trust in him. And it means that you have a new and permanent acceptance with God. It's, it, it means that God will embrace you and be intimate with you forever and never let you go and never turn his back upon you. That's what the resurrection means to us. It gives us the absolute hope of forgiveness and acceptance. Now, why is this so important in your day-to-day life? Several things. First, this is the only way you and I can face our wrong that we have inside, that we have in our words, in our thoughts, in our deeds. It's the only way we can honestly and openly face our wrong in the context of knowing that we have forgiveness with God. It means that we can begin to search ourselves and be open about it, knowing that this is not going to mean that God rejects me, but it's in the context of his acceptance. In fact, God puts his arm around me to help me explore the destructive ways of my life so that I can continually change. And it's all in the context of acceptance and love. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is meant to be lived guilt-free, not free of guilt if you've done something wrong, but free of condemning guilt. Free of wondering, is God going to send me to judgment or not? And the only way I can honestly explore my own life is in the context of this acceptance. If you don't have that sense of acceptance and you think somehow that you've got to be good enough to get to God and to stay with God, then what will you do? You'll begin to downplay your sin. You'll begin to make excuses for your sin because you can't face your sin because if you face your sin, you know that God's going to reject you. 
Or you can concentrate on some external things. Hey, I can do this and this and this and this, and I'm going to call that the Christian life, and I'm just going to keep those things. Maybe it's reading your Bible or praying so many minutes a day, attending church, doing good, etc. And I'm not going to worry about my thought life because that will just destroy me. Uh, I'm not going to worry about my words and my gossip and, and my envy in my heart and anger. I, I'm just going to concentrate on these outward things. You see, if, if you've tasted his forgiveness and you live in that forgiveness, then you can honestly search out your sin. You can honestly search out, begin to search out the own, your own pain in life and your own hurt that, that's been done to you and some of your own ways that you've reacted against that pain. Because most of us in one way or another have developed coping mechanisms to try to get through life, a, sur- a personal survival kit to get through hard things, and many times it's not trusting in God. Well, we have the opportunity when he accepts us to begin to explore what's cooking in my heart, what's going on in the way I treat people, in the way I think about life. As we experience forgiveness, the Lord Jesus we begin to live out His forgiveness. As we experience His patience with us, we begin to be patient with other people. As we experience His kindness, we begin to walk more and more in kindness. It begins to take more and more edge off our personality. More and more we're able not to be resentful or bitter or to explode in anger to be sullen in our reactions because we're being soaked more and more into this wonderful forgiveness, exploring the love of Christ. I love Psalm 90.14. It says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And this affects the ones you love the most. It affects the way you begin to treat them. It affects how you drive, you know. It affects what you think about people, how patient you are with people, even when you drive. This brings, as we explore forgiveness, it brings gratitude into our heart. Thankfulness strengthens you as a human being. It makes you a better person. You're more resilient when tough things happen because you're, you're strengthened by gratitude. Gratitude comes from realizing I'm a forgiven person in God's presence. Also, this sense of being forgiven means that God is committed to my good in all circumstances of life. We we draw a line from his forgiveness and acceptance to daily events in our lives, and they're conditioned by that forgiveness. Even when terrible things happen to us, we see behind them and we believe the God who has forgiven me, the God who has given his son for me, that's the God that rules my life. And you think of the freedom this gives you. Think of the uh, strength this gives you. The ability to, even when hard things happen for you, to be so immersed in the forgiveness and love of God that you love others, even when bad things are happening to you. And, of course, it gives us the greatest hope for Judgment Day. There's more to be said, but this is the hope of forgiveness in the resurrection. There's a hope of change in the resurrection. We've already seen some of that in the hope of forgiveness. But in the hope of change, you know, here's the thing. 
I won't even recognize the goodness and beauty of Christ unless God gives me the ability to do that. I'll hear about Jesus and I'll hear about the resurrection and I'll just shrug my shoulders unless God enables me to see it. It's amazing that Paul uses the analogy of God in creation, saying, just like God said, let there be light in the original creation, he says, God has shown into our hearts to see the glory of Jesus. So it, it, it's a sovereign, it's a mighty work of God to even help us begin to see the beauty and glory of Jesus. And even talking about recognizing my own heart and recognizing how I treat people, I won't begin to really do that and explore that apart from the power of God. Because I'm bent on myself. I'm committed to me. And God has to work in me. He has to bring about a resurrection in my own life so that I can change. We're told that the heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all else. Who can know it? I can't even know my own heart. I don't really understand my own motives. I don't understand why I mistreat my wife at times. I don't get it. God has to change me. God has to transform me. The, the language in Scripture is that we were dead in our trespasses and that God raised us up to new life. Dead is pretty serious. And it may seem, it may seem hyperbole, you know, like, well, yeah, dead, come on. I mean, snap your fingers in a dead person's ears, wave your hand in front of his face, put smelling salts under his nose, shake him, throw water on his face, shock him. He's dead. I remember I had to take a huge Doberman. Uh, Friends of ours had moved away, and their uh, two dogs were being taken care of by somebody else. But they found out that this, the big one, the big male, had uh, heartworms, and he had to be put down. And the people who'd taken care of the dogs couldn't get him to the vet, so I went over and got this big guy, big husky, just you know, pulling at you, you know, you, you realize he was like 10 times stronger than me, you know, <laughs> he could kill me any moment if he wanted to, but he was a friendly guy. But this huge, big Doberman, he's sitting here on the table with the vet and the nurse, they had him lying down and the nurse didn't know he was giving him the shot. And I felt the power of this dog and I saw him give the shot and then in seconds his life was gone. It's gone right before my eyes. It kind of shocked me, you know. And the nurse didn't know it, and she came over to do something to the dog. And I remember I was so shocked the guy was real brash, and he said, he's dead. You know, just like that to the nurse because she didn't realize that he had just given the shot. You know, and I think of this here, you know, concerning my heart and your heart, what we are by nature. You know, God saying to the angels, to anyone that asks, He's dead. He's dead, don't you realize? It's going to take a miracle. It's going to take resurrection to bring us to life. And we might still think, come on, dead? I've got a good life. I've got a good job. I've got good friends, family. I help people when I can. How can you say I'm dead apart from Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible describes our sin in this way in Romans 1, that we basically worship God's creation rather than him. There's your bottom line. That's what dead is in the Bible. We worship his creation instead of him. 
It's like, you've heard me illustrate this before, someone was to bring me a gift. You know, Ben Dice comes for my birthday. And I'm, you know, walk to the door and there's Ben. He says, darling, I just thought I'd bring you a, a gift for your birthday. And I snatch it out of his hand. I slam the door. Go away, Ben. You know. What? You know. That's the picture of mankind, though. The picture painted in Romans is that we take whatever we can out of God's hand and we're just pushing him out of the way, slamming the door in his face, and then concentrating on what he's given us. We like so many things in this world. Sports and books and movies and money and cars and sex and vacations and friends and art and music and TV and internet and shopping and we could go on and on and on. And the problem is not only that we love them more than God, we love them instead of God. Okay? And by nature, we're not seeking to please God and enjoy God in our use of these things. Because they're given for our enjoyment. They're given as part of his creation, creation and culture. It's not the thing itself is wrong. It's what we do with it. It's how we take it and push him out. We're prayerless. We're, we don't listen to his word. We don't even think about him. He doesn't come into play with these things by nature. We just want what he gives us. And so it's in effect, for as much as in this condition, as his word has to do, it's like we're, you've heard people say, la, 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 you know, like that. That's, that's kind of us with God's word. And do we pray to him earnestly and gladly and we're praising him and we're recognizing him and everything? By nature, not hardly, not hardly. And so the Bible says, in that we don't have this cherishing heart for God, we're dead. And, and really, God's the only one that can change us. God's the only one that can make us into God lovers. I have to be rescued from my distaste for God, you see. I have to be rescued from my disgust over God. From my own, my conviction that God is bland and tasteless and cheerless and really worthless. It's interesting when Jacob married Leah because Leah's brother pulled a fast one on Jacob. He thought he was getting Rachel, the cute one, and uh, he got Leah, the not-so-cute one. And so he had to wait seven more years. There's a very sad thing that said there that, that, that Leah was hated. Leah was hated. Well, Leah was loved decently as a wife, but he didn't love her like he loved Rachel. So he was hated. And so this is how God looks at the way we just love stuff, you know. And for God, kind of, well, I don't know, just shrug my shoulders at God. And God says, Mm, you hate me, don't you? God alone can make this God love in us. It's not just a place in my life. You know, I don't say, I love Kay and I love this one and I love this one, but I love her too. You know, Would that be any defense? Well, I'm not saying I don't love her. I just love some other women too. No, 
That would mean, by definition, she's despised. She's despised. So there's this supreme God love, you see. A supreme God love that governs all my other loves. So that all my other loves are to be a part of this love. They're to be expressions of this love to God. And so the best part of my enjoyment of any part of this world should be my enjoyment of God in it. That's what a resurrected life can look like. My delight in Him and my thankfulness to Him for creating this thing, for allowing me to enjoy this thing, for sparing me from a judgment which would have removed me from these things. Thank you, Lord. And the sense of fellowship, the sense of you're an amazing God that you've allowed me to have this and that you made it. Well, it's interesting how Paul in this passage where he says, you were dead, he says, he raised us up with Jesus, and he says later, because you're his workmanship, created for good. I love that. Dead workmanship. Dead art piece. Beautiful art piece that's going to spill out good in every direction. This is what God does in raising us. And more briefly, I want to touch on these last two points. It's not only a hope for forgiveness and a hope for transformation, but a hope for a new community. Hope for a new community. And and that's what Peter's talking about here, isn't it? He says, you're living stones now. Living has to do with resurrected. You've been raised together. But it's interesting a, a, a brick is not supposed to lie in a field somewhere, right? A brick is, and, and if you saw a bunch of bricks in the field, you say, oh, I wonder who made these bricks to, to sit in the field. No, you know those bricks somehow, somewhere got lost or left over or whatever, and they're not really being used for what they're supposed to be. Each one of you is called a living stone. To, to be, and of course, the building analogy, these are people stones, so the idea is, You're to relate to the rest of the body of of Christ, the rest of the people of God. You're made for those people. You're resurrected for those people, and they're resurrected for you. We're resurrected as a community so that it's a new community, a new fellowship of love in its best. Now, at its worst... You get Newsweek, where Andrew Sullivan on the title says, Forget the church, follow Jesus. Yikes. Of course, in here he points out what the church says, among them Joel Osteen's statements about prosperity and other things. And, of course, when you look at the church at its worst, and it's not so good, you can think, forget the church, Follow Jesus. Only problem is, God has planned to use the church. Even as he says in this passage, we're a people so that we can proclaim the excellencies of God. I'm fascinated by the phrase in Titus, as Paul's talking to slaves, and he says, adorn the doctrine of God. And I don't... 
I don't see how I could adorn God's doctrine, right? You think, here's the pure doctrine of God. Bring an angel in. Let him adorn the doctrine because he's perfect. I'm not perfect. But here's how even we sinners, us failing, struggling people, adorn the doctrine of God. If you imagine a person in a canoe and he's in a storm and he's blinding rain and, and lightning and and waves, and he can't find his way, and he's about to go under. Does he want somebody way up there that's different from him shouting down something? Or could it be to have another person who's also in the storm, who's also struggling in the waves, who also has the same issues and problems, and yet he's found a way? He's found a way, and that way is Christ. And you see, we adorn the doctrine by living in the midst of a broken world as fellow broken people who are being sustained by the grace of Jesus and by the grace that we give to one another. We become a community that sustains one another in love and servanthood. We become a community in the midst of a world that's broken. And so, like the Tower of Babel where God brought uh, differing languages, and it scattered the world. It scattered people so that they couldn't relate to one another. The, the time where Jesus poured out his spirit on the church and they spoke in different languages to all the people gathered there at that feast, it was a way to say, I'm bringing them back together. I'm bringing what I scattered back together in Christ. There's going to be a new community of people that are very different from one another, very different socially, very different culturally, very different racially. And they're going to be brought together to be a monument of the resurrection power of God that recreates a people. There's so much to say about this. Hebrews 10, though, says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't forsake it, but continue to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. See that? The resurrection community, not failing to get together, to, to be together, to encourage one another, to give ourselves up to Christ and to one another. To, to extend on that idea of the brick, and you've heard me say this before, but I'll just repeat it for some who maybe have not heard it. We're, we're given the analogy of being a body, that is the church, a, a body, and each of us are members of that body. Now, imagine if your kids come in from playing outside, and there's a field across the street that they play in a lot, and you're eating supper, and you just get to dessert, and you're kind of settling in, and you say, well, kids, what'd y'all do today? Eh, we saw this finger out on the field, and we did so and so and so. What would happen? You what? You What? Dialing 911, right? <laughs> a finger in the field is an emergency. Something bad has happened somewhere. And I'm using that as a way to say, look, you're a part. If, if you've been resurrected, you're not resurrected to be a body part lying in a field. You're resurrected to be a part of the resurrected community. That's what you're here for. <laughs> To be a part of this resurrection life that we are trying to exhibit before the world. To reach the world in our love and deeds and message. To, to bring light to the world. It's an amazing thing that 
Jesus would call us the light of the world, which he does. And finally, just to mention this, it's the hope of forgiveness, it's the hope of transformation, it's the hope of community, and it's the hope of the final redemption of the whole earth. (laughs) Because this is a resurrection that doesn't just affect us individually. It doesn't just affect us as a community. It affects the whole of creation. One aspect of this is that Jesus has been exalted as the ruler over all, but he is the God-man. And as man, he has restored us to kingship in this world. He has restored us to kingship, and so in his power and grace, we begin to try to extend his rule, his gracious rule of love in every direction. So we, the, the, what's going to happen in the end, and, and here, Time Magazine. <laughs> That's how many magazines can I use this morning? But there is an interesting article called Rethinking Heaven. And it's, it's interesting because it in some ways aligns with what we've been teaching about heaven, that heaven is not in the end floating in some space somewhere in the clouds having a heart, but the final thing that God's going to do is renew the whole earth. And there will be renewed bodies and a renewed earth, uh, renewed culture. And this whole world is destined to be reclaimed by God. He doesn't just do away with his creation. He reclaims his creation. And the resurrection of Christ is the event that begins to tumble that forward to the inevitable final resurrection of this world. And as you've heard me say before, that in Romans 8, the whole creation, it says, is waiting on tiptoe, eagerly waiting for the resurrection of the children of God because that's the signal that its change is going to happen. So the whole earth is engaged in this change. So the resurrection changed the very course of the world. It changed the very direction of all things. And so we, you and I must see our life in living out the gospel We're extending the kingdom of God and we're anticipating the glorious change that's going to come. If we begin to roll back, you know, poverty through the gospel and we begin to roll back pain and suffering through the gospel and reclaim lives for Jesus Christ, it's just an anticipation when that final day the whole world would be changed. We participate in something gigantic. All that we do is an anticipation of this final renewal. My uh, grandson, Easton, you know how you uh, do this with kids all the time. Uh, you hold up something in front of their eyes and say, Where's Easton? Where's Easton? There he is. Right? I mean, you all do that, right? <clears throat> Please tell me you do that soon. <laughs> He's weird. He's weird. Yeah, right. Well, this was so cute because Melly was telling me a few weeks ago that they were riding in the car, and here's Easton in the back going, Where's Easton? Here I am. <laughs> Where's Easton? Here I am. And then he'd say, Mama, Mama, Mama. 
she'd kind of look and say, where's Easton? Here I am. And I thought about that in terms of the resurrection. If there's this, this question that comes out to say, where is the resurrection? Where's the resurrection? You say, it's in the shalom I feel before God. It's in the acceptance that I experience because I have the forgiveness of sins. Where's the resurrection? It's in the changes. They're slow, they're small, but the changes in my life that are occurring as I'm facing some issues in my life that I've never faced before. I'm, I'm facing difficulties. I'm facing habits of sin that I never was able to face before. God is really bringing change to my life. There's the resurrection. Where's the resurrection? And you can bring people to this fellowship and we're not a perfect fellowship. We're full of sin. We're sinners struggling to move forward together and hold on to one another. But by God's grace, there's some demonstration of the love of God. We say, here's the resurrection. There's the resurrection. I can look at your faces and these faces say, there's the resurrection. And when we as a church see more and more change and the church worldwide sacrifices itself and dies for the sake of the gospel and then brings change upon change upon change, even willing to sacrifice itself, we say, there's the resurrection. There's the resurrection. May we live it out in every part of our life, this new world that Jesus has brought us into. May he be glorified by our lives. Let us pray. O oh Lord, you have brought victory to your people. You have brought rescue to your people. You've brought forgiveness and change and community. And you've brought us a purpose to participate in this resurrection that is affecting the world. It's resurrection that is extending love and sacrifice into the darkness of this world. And, O oh Lord, in that final day, your resurrection will engulf the whole of creation. And this creation that is crippled, Paul says, that is constrained, that we'd say is basically in a wheelchair, it's going to get up and start running like a whippet, like a greyhound, eager, glorious, like we've never seen before. The butterfly where there was a caterpillar before, Lord, and we ourselves will take on the glory of your body. We are told we will reign with you. Lord, we can't conceive what this will mean to be free of sin, to be completely able to love one another, never do wrong to one another, never have wrong done to us, and to be given bodies that endure forever. Lord, we... we your salvation extends beyond our imagination. We pray, Lord, that we will trust you, that we will trust in the greatness of your power to change us, the greatness of your power to use us, to lead us in the ways of your resurrected life. It is for your sake that we pray. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you.
Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?